still new and unfinished, that even now, America is man's greatest adventure in time and space. University of North Carolina, through a grant and aid from the National Association of Educational Broadcasters, presents American Adventure, a study of man in the new world, a series made possible by the Fund for Adult Education, an independent agency established by the Ford Foundation. Written by John Ely, directed by John Clayton, today's recorded program presents Charles Hadley in Grandfather Jefferson, a documented study of Thomas Jefferson as he was known to his grandchildren. Your carriage bumps over the hard Virginia ground. It's a steep climb for the horses up the hill to Monticello. And it's night. The horses move nervously, but you hurry them. You heard Tom Jefferson lies ill, his breathing low. Tonight he'll die. Could I help you down, sir? Your carriage has stopped at the west portico of the great beautiful house. Around about, people are standing, waiting. You go into the entrance hall, then turn left and go down the passage to the library. There you nod to the doctor and to Mrs. Randolph, Tom Jefferson's daughter. Then you go into the bedroom of Jefferson. He is there. You are there. And I, Tom Jefferson's grandson. Randolph? Yes, grandfather. I thought perhaps you had left. No, sir. What woke you? The clock chime? I don't think so. What time is it, anyway? A minute or so past ten. Two hours before the fourth, is it? Yes, sir. The fourth of July. If you move closer to the bed, you can see my grandfather. His hair looks even more red than usual on the whiteness of the pillows. This is the man who has walked the high road of his generation. This weak man here. Here, lie back, Grandfather, lie back. Shall I call the doctor? He's outside. No, 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 it's... It, oh, it's, it's good to feel your strong hands on my shoulder, Randolph. Yes, sir. Oh, I thank the Lord for you. You've become as close to me as any son could ever have been to me. The staff of my old age. Lie quietly, sir. I've known happiness here with you and your mother and the others. Real happiness. Yes, sir. In Philadelphia, Ben Franklin wanted me to change happiness into inalienable rights, you remember? On this very night, years ago, July the 3rd, I was explaining the Declaration of Independence to some friends, and, and old Ben was there. And I got to the part where among these are life, liberty, and happiness. And, and old Ben leaned forward and said, Tom, wonder if anybody ever really possessed happiness. Maybe the words pursuit of would fit in there better. So the inalienable rights of man became life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Ben was wrong, bless his heart. When your grandmother was alive, I possessed happiness. I want to see her again. 
Shall I call the doctor in, Grandfather? You look very tired. Enough. The, the newspapers and preachers, some of them are... Some of them say Tom Jefferson doesn't believe in God or an afterlife. Why do they say that? I don't know, sir. But it's the general conception, sir. How do they know what I believe? I I tell you, I know that I, when I die, I, I'll be taken to another place. I'll go from this family at Monticello to the members of my family who have gone on, and I'll go to where they are with God. I believe that. I know, sir. I'd go in a minute except for one thing, those those little ones, those little great-grandchildren. Now, how can a man leave them when they don't know anything about anything and when he's neglected them? Neglected them, sir? Yes, in a real way, and, and you too. Being off in Philadelphia or Washington all my life, away from home, never where I wanted to be, always gone. But the little ones... They're very important. They'll learn, sir. They'll have fine teachers. And perhaps not as good as you, but as good as yours were. Oh, I don't mean learning facts, Randolph. It, it's not something to be said, but to be demonstrated about life. I tried to say it to them yesterday, but They'll I... They'll not forget what you said, Grandfather. Oh, little George will. I'll remind him, sir. Now, don't worry about that, Grandfather. I'd, I'd like to see the 4th of July come again. Yes, sir. You will, sir. I... I think I'll go to sleep now, Randolph. So passed those late evening hours of July 3rd. I watched my grandfather as the doctor would come and count his breathing, as my mother would anxiously step in for a few minutes, then leave again. But I sat silently and considered what he might have meant. Something deeper than facts that he wanted to show the children. Something about life. I found it in Congress that he believed he had neglected his family. About 10.45, I went to the window and looked over the lawn, hardly seeing the people who waited there. Instead, I saw the afternoons when the grass was warm with the southern sun... And Grandfather, retired from the presidency, was surrounded by his small group of great-grandchildren. But why do you put the flowers in the ground, Grandfather? Oh, I'm not putting flowers in the ground, Johnny. These are bulbs. I thought you said you were going to plant flowers. Well, I am planting flowers. I thought you said they were bulbs. Oh, yes, that's correct. You see, to get flowers, you plant bulbs. If you plant flowers, do you get bulbs? No, you get flowers and bulbs when you plant bulbs. Uh, uh, well, it all comes down to this. Uh, we plant bulbs now, and in the spring, we have flowers. No. No what? No, sir. You don't believe we can plant bulbs and get flowers? No, sir. How can a bulb become a flower? Especially a cauliflower. <laughs> How many of you children agree with Johnny that these bulbs will not produce flowers? Me. I do. <laughs> Well, now, how many of you think they will produce flowers? Well, well, this proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that the majority may be free to decide, but they certainly aren't always right. It took but one spring to convince the majority that they were not right. And after that, whenever Grandfather's bulbs arrived from Philadelphia, it was a wonderful experience for them to watch 
He opened the package and displayed the brown packets of bulbs and seeds for the excited children. Now, this particular package of bulbs is called uh, Marcus Aurelius. Marcus Aurelius. Mar Aurelius. Marius. Now, this package is labeled the king of the gold mine. Gold mine? What colors will those flowers be, Grandfather? <laughs> oh, I don't know, honey. Probably silver. Now, this package is called the queen of the Amazons. Amazon. Little George isn't getting any of the names right, Grandfather. Oh, a man has a right to pronounce names of flowers as he wants to, honey. Right or wrong or indifferently. Right, little George? Right, little George. <laughs> play near the garden beds. When the first green leaf topped the ground, they would run to their grandfather and tell him excitedly. He would leave his books of history and science and languages. He would leave his thoughts about government and the ways of trade and the value of money and the extent of taxes and the recruiting of armies and the making of wars. And he would hurry after them to the garden plot and kneel down with them and say, <laughs> Marcus Aurelius has just seen the light of day, children. And look over there and see how the king of the gold mine is doing. My sister Ellen was very fond of riding. When small, she told me once she'd never cared in her childhood simplicity what equipment or saddle or bridles she used. But as she grew older, she became, as women will, more fastidious. One day, as she stood in the portico at Monticello, a man rode up to the door with a beautiful lady's saddle and bridle before him. Her heart bounded. These coveted articles were deposited at her feet as Grandfather came out of his room to tell her that they were hers. When 15 years old, she began to think of a watch. But knowing that Grandfather was having difficult financial problems at the time, she didn't expect one and didn't mention it. One afternoon, the letter bag was brought in. Among the letters was a small packet addressed to my grandfather. She looked at it indifferently. Three hours later, an elegant lady's watch with chain and seals was in her hand, which trembled for very joy. So it was with her writing desk, her first legger and hat, her first silk dress, her first Bible, her first Shakespeare... All in all, all her treasures and all of mine and my brothers and sisters, what indeed that was beautiful, that we treasured, has not come from him. Without asking, without even mentioning, he knew. As I sat there in his bedroom, looking at his face, that thoughtful, kind face, altered now with a puzzled expression caused by some pain, I heard in my mind's ear the song he had taught the children to sing. This reader of Aeschylus, Sophocles, Euripides, this lover of Homer and Virgil, student of Shakespeare and Milton, master of languages, I heard the song he taught the children to sing. <laughs> Very good. Very good indeed. And now I have a new book. Oh, who is it for, Grandfather? Well, now, suppose we draw straws and see. Let's see, there's four of you here today, and I have four straws somewhere. What do I do with those four straws? Oh, yes, here they are in my watch pocket. <laughs> now then, take a straw, Virginia. Don't show it anybody. All right, Johnny. And you, honey, and you. 
Now, who has the short one? I think I have. Have you, Virginia? Yes, that is the short one. You may read the book first. Thank you. I get to read it first. Maybe I'm second. Let me see. No, no, that, that's third. And Johnny's second. And you, my dear, are doubtless fourth. So I'll tell you what. When the book gets to you and you've read it, you may have it on what's left of it. Thank you, Grandfather. Now then, what shall we play? Cross-questions. Cross-questions it is. I'm first. No, it's not I would stand sometimes in the doorway and watch them. They would play these games from twilight until the candles were brought in and lighted. Then immediately, the games would be stopped. Grandfather would take up whatever book he was studying and retire to his favorite chair. Then the children, one by one, would take their books, which they'd won through the months by drawing the longest straw. And they would sit down around his candelabrum on the floor, Thomas Jefferson and his children. And they wouldn't say a word, lest they disturb him. Let me put this moist cloth on his forehead. Will he be all right, Doctor? I don't know. I'm just a doctor. He looks much worse. Yes, he does. Come in, Mother. How is Father? Not very well, Mrs. Randolph. Is he asleep? Yes, a restless sleep. Look at his hand. It's moving very slowly over the quilt. He's dreaming, Mrs. Randolph. But... His temperature is very high. It's natural. What do you suppose he's dreaming? Who knows what your father might have in his mind. Maybe he's writing something from the Declaration of Independence. Or a paper in answer to Mr. Hamilton. Or his inaugural address. It could be the first papers that founded the university here in Charlottesville. Who knows what Tom Jefferson might be writing. Come over to the window, Doctor. People are gathering on the lawn even more than earlier. How do people know? How do they find out? I suppose that they just woke up at night and the husband said to the wife, Honey, Tom Jefferson is sick up there on Monticello. I feel it. That's the only way they could know. It's the same lawn that was used when the Marquis de Lafayette came to visit Grandfather. About the same crowd, I suppose. Probably the same people. Were you here when Lafayette arrived? No, I heard about it, but I was in Williamsburg at the time. Lafayette and Grandfather, in this country and in France, were the best of friends. They hadn't seen each other for years, and so a crowd of about 200 people gathered on the lawn right there to witness the reunion of the two old revolutionary figures. People formed a semicircle on that side of the lawn about mid-morning. We heard the horses of the Marquis on the road down the mountain. One hundred and twenty mounted men escorted his carriage into the yard, and they, they formed in a semicircle facing the people. Then a drum began to roll. An eerie sound, the roll of a drum, sound with greatness in it, war and determination, sound with a salute in it, sound of a nation's salute. And the carriage door was opened, and Lafayette stepped slowly down. He was permanently lame and broken in health by his recent confinement in the dungeon of Olds in France. My grandfather then appeared from the house and they began to walk across the lawn towards each other, each of them very old and each humbled by the greatness of the other, the emotions of all the decades they've lived in the front lines of the struggle of men and their freedom, and of all the years they've been parted. As they moved closer to each other, their paces quickened. 
a shuffling run and exclaiming, Ah, Jefferson, all off yet. They fell into each other's arms. Arm in arm, they moved back slowly into the house. What time is it, Doctor? Shortly after 11. Grandfather wanted to live until midnight. Willie? Yes, probably. Randolph? He said something. Yes, Grandfather. You will remember? Remember what, sir? About little George. Yes, sir, I will. Martha. Yes, Father. God bless you. I looked down into his face and thought frantically for a moment, for I was not sure exactly what I had promised him. Then as he went back to sleep, I reconstructed the scene of the day before when he'd addressed the children for the last time. They'd filed in and lined up against the wall according to age, and he lay high on his pillows as was his habit and spoke to them as he would have addressed a group of visiting dignitaries of an older age. You hear another express an opinion which is not yours. Say to yourself, he has a right to his opinion as I to mine. His error does me no injury, and shall I become a Don Quixote to bring all men by force of argument to one opinion? If a fact be misstated, it's probable he is gratified by a belief in it. And you have no right to deprive him of the gratification. He wants information, you'll ask for it. And then give it to him in measured terms. But if he still believes his own story and shows a desire to dispute the fact with you, hear him and say nothing. It's his affair, not yours, if he prefers error. Are you listening, George? Yes, Grandfather. I'll wager you are. Now, look here. I've spent a good deal of effort working together a speech for you children, and I'm delivering it. Something I didn't even do for Congress was deliver my inaugural. So consider yourselves honored and listen to me. Yes, Grandfather. Now, the gist of what I said to you in that previous bit was, don't expect everybody to agree with you. And beware of the man who demands they do. Now, the second point is, beware of the citizen who is rude and has, for some reason, taken up a passion for politics. Be absolutely silent when around such people. No good can ever result from any attempt to set one of those fiery zealots to, to rights, either in fact or principle. They're determined as to the facts they'll believe and the opinions on which they'll act. Get by them, therefore, as you would by an angry bull. It's not for a man of sense to dispute the road with such an animal. Little George, this bores you, does it? Yes, Grandfather. <laughs> I don't think George understands much of this, Randolph. No, I don't think so either. George... Come here a minute. Now, son, what can I say to you that you'll remember? Remember? Yes, remember. Remember? Can I discuss with you the concept of freedom for the man rather than freedom for the majority? You understand that? Yes, Grandfather. <laughs> Shall I say to you, George, look here. Be careful of your own freedom when you see another man denied his. Do you understand that? Yes, Grandfather. Well, you're a good deal smarter than Alexander Hamilton, then. What did you say, Grandfather? I said, uh, well, uh, I said, never uh, never speak evil about a man when you when you can speak good, didn't I, George? Yes, Grandfather. <laughs> Would you believe it? Little George has turned the line. <laughs> George, stand back there and say a poem for me. Now, say that poem I taught you, the one I learned when I was your age. Yes, Grandfather. 
Go on. I've seen the sea. I've seen the sea all in a blaze of fire. I've seen a house high as the moon and higher. I've seen the sun at 12 o'clock at night. I've seen the man who saw this wondrous sight. <laughs> now, I tell you, that's what I call an artistic, meaningful reading of a poem. Back up there, George, and recite that verse again. Go on, go on. I've seen the sea all in the blaze of a fire. I've seen a house high as the moon and higher. I've seen the sun at 12 o'clock at night. I've seen the man who saw this wondrous sight. <laughs> Oh, George, you're fine. Come here a minute. Come here. You mustn't mind my laughing at your recitation, George. Yes, Grandfather. They used to laugh at me, I remember. When I'd say that same poem, my father would throw back his head and roar. Oh, you got a cocklebur in your hair. How did it get that? It grew, I guess. Oh, did it? You planted a cocklebur seed and it grew right there, is that it? Yes, Grandfather. <laughs> I see, George. George, when I think of how much knowledge men have gathered down through the ages and how much you have, I just shake my head and wonder. Look here, you you know four lines of poetry. You know them very well, no doubt about it, but, but there are millions and millions of lines of facts and theories and beautiful thoughts which men have gathered through the ages, and here you are, George Randolph, master of four of them. Just as I, Thomas Jefferson, was master of the same four lines when I was your age. Now I can look back and see all that I did, mistakes and the successes. But I can help you only in part because, because I can't look forward any more than you. Nobody knows what you'll be like and what you'll become. But out of my life and experiences... Looking way back, I... I... What's the matter, Grandfather? Hmm? Oh, I... I, I guess I just talked myself into looking back, Randolph. I... My, it is a long road, you know. It's way, way off in the distance. I can see my father with his head thrown back, laughing. <laughs> and I can see my father buried... I see William and Mary College in the dawn light when I rise and begin to study. <laughs> I see the trembling man I was when I first stepped before the Virginia legislature. And I, I remember how my throat would clog up when I tried to speak. I can hear the words of Patrick Henry and read the words of Thomas Paine. Oh, oh not in the trite sense of hearing them a thousand times, but, but in the real sense of hearing them when they were treason and I've taken my stand with them when a man's life could be lost for saying too much. I can see the eyes of George Washington as they revealed his mind slowly considering the alternatives and then slowly revealing that he had decided, and so be it. I can see far back when my wife was sick and, and my children, one by one, sick and dying and my wife, dead. All except Martha, dead. I can see the courts of the kings of Europe and the chamber of the Senate as I took up their gavel and banged for order for that first time. <laughs> and the feeling inside of pride and duty. 
I can look back at the loneliness of the White House for eight long years when the newspapers blackened my reputation and smeared my name so that there was no defending it. Lonely years. And the books. The thousands upon thousands of books. How many languages, how many deaths and lives have passed me and I, I have touched them and... And now I remember their faces, only glimpses. And I can hear voices which mean no person to me that I can name. I can look back over tens of thousands of morning awakenings and places visited and tables set for 50,000 meals and, and beauty in the simplest things and meaning in the most tangible items. With these very curtains here on my bed. These curtains I purchased from the first cargo to be received in this country after the revolution. Lucian? Revolution. Revolution. <laughs> yes, George, yes, you'll, you'll run another course. I can't tell you how to run it either, except to tell you to run it well as you understand the meaning of the word. And don't let anybody tell you it isn't worth the effort. It is. You hear? Yes, Grandfather. Well, if you can't remember all that, just remember I love you. And remember to love your family. Now as you're a child, and later as you become a husband and a father who teaches his children the four lines I've taught. Love. Love is the one word. All this other, this business about life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness all men are engaged in. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness are all tied up with, with love. This then was my grandfather. And when I hear men debate the pros and cons of his work, the value of his life, the principles, ideology, the philosophy of Thomas Jefferson, I listen, for I think that pursuit is well worthwhile. But for myself, I cannot say it very clearly, but I feel it overwhelmingly. His great philosophy can be fully understood only when you've seen him as I not in the councils of state, but teaching children. I see him with the little ones gathered around him, and I say, this man, he is Thomas Jefferson. Always the new, always the beginning, always the bulb that must sprout into the flower of full life. This was my grandfather, as he appeared to us, his grandchildren. American Adventure is written by John Ely, directed by John Clayton, produced by the Communication Center of the University of North Carolina. American Adventure is a study of man in the new world, his values and his characteristics, who he is, what he believes. The series is made possible by the National Association of Educational Broadcasters and the Fund for Adult Education, an independent agency established by the Ford Foundation. Our story, Grandfather Jefferson, is primarily based on research done in the book 
The Domestic Life of Thomas Jefferson, written by his great-granddaughter, Sarah N. Randolph. In our production, Charles Hadley was Jefferson, and Charles Corralt was his grandson. Carl Castle speaking. American Adventure is produced and recorded by the University of North Carolina on the campus at Chapel Hill. American Adventure originated through the facilities of WSJS Radio in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Monitor takes you everywhere each weekend on NBC Radio.